Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, let's remain standing and I'll pray for us now. That is our prayer, Heavenly Father, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, reveal your glory, and help us to confess that Jesus is Lord, not just in some abstract way, but that we might make it personal and say, Jesus is my Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, it is uh, very good to see you here, and again, uh, as Pete has welcomed uh, you all, and especially those who are new, uh, very, very good to see you. Welcome uh, those of you who've just arrived in Sheffield, uh, perhaps as students especially, but uh, anyone else as well. It is brilliant to have you here. We uh, we just started uh, last week looking through this section of Luke's Gospel, starting from uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. We did that last week, 
and uh, we pick the story up, the, uh, the incidents of Jesus uh, going around um, uh, and uh, pick it up in verse 11. Page 1049 is the page number that you might like to open to as we look at this Bible passage together. There are not many things in life more heart-wrenching than the breakdown of precious relationships. Sometimes it happens in an almighty row in a marriage. It might be the discovery of an adulterous affair. In an ordinary friendship, it might just be some other kind of dispute that sees tempers flaring. Whatever the precise details, the relationship is broken in one explosive moment as one person tells another, I never want to see you again. Get out and don't come back. Suddenly, devastatingly, a precious, loving relationship has ended. And then sometimes relationships just kind of drift apart. There are no raised voices. There's no crisis moment. A wife will say, I just don't love him anymore. Or a friend will say, we just don't talk anymore. There was no big row, just a drifting apart. And now the relationship in any meaningful sense of the word is over. Well, in Luke chapter 15, we find arguably the most famous story Jesus ever told. And it is a story about broken relationships. And ultimately about one broken relationship, the relationship with our creator. It's a family story. It's about a father who had uh, two sons. And as Jesus tells the story, it becomes obvious that the father in the story is like God. Now, I don't know what your view of God is, but if it's like many people I speak to, this will turn your understanding completely upside down. Because this story tells us that God is for us, that he loves us, that whatever we've done, he invites us back. Whether we've stormed out of relationship with him, and we got really angry with him at some point, said, I don't want anything to do with you again. Or whether we've just drifted away and simply don't really functionally have anything much to do with him in our lives day by day. Uh, Jesus was prompted to tell this story when a group of religious people disapproved of the company that Jesus was keeping. We saw this last week, but if you weren't here last week, have a look back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Where we read, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus... But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, there are two groups of people here. We might call them the sinners and the saints. And the two sons in the story that Jesus tells here represent those two groups of people. The younger son is those in verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners who who gathered to listen to Jesus. They were, without putting too fine a point on it, the the scum of society. They were the, the real low life with no intended comparison to those who work for the Inland Revenue today, the tax collectors of Jesus' day were corrupt. They collaborated with the detested occupying Roman army. The rest of the the sinners, as it's put here, well, they were people who hung out with Jesus. We, We know what some of them were like. They were prostitutes. Today, they'd be cowboy builders, drug addicts, drug pushers. In a sentence, the younger son in the story represents the sort of people that you and I wouldn't want moving in next door. 
That's why we live in Fullwood. <laughs> and the older son, well, he represents the group in chapter 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious and oh, the respectable people. People like us who live in Fullwood. Now, with those two groups of people before us, as Jesus tells this parable, he intends us all to see ourselves in the story, in one of the two, son, uh, one of the two sons. A few years back, I came across uh, this in a letters page in a national newspaper. It was written by somebody called Tony Rigby from Buckinghamshire. Sir, you report that Barclays Bank is being forced to review its onerous identification requirements. This takes me back to a happy memory from my days with Barclays when, as a cashier, I had to ask an elderly customer if she could identify herself. She rummaged in her handbag, produced a mirror and said, yes, young man, this is definitely me. <laughs> he finishes, I cashed her check. Now, as we read this parable, Jesus is asking, can you identify yourself? You need to rummage in your imaginary handbag and pick out the mirror and look in here and say, which of these two sons is me? Which one best represents me? You see, there's the first, the, the younger son, verse 11. Jesus said there was a, a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country. Ah, you can see the picture. The younger son wants to cut loose. Dad, he says, you know that life insurance policy? I'd like my share now. And his dad explained, well, son, I'd love to give it to you now, but those things only mature when I'm dead. You'll have to wait. Oh, you know, Dad, you've got the point. Dad, I'd like it now because, frankly, Dad, I wish you were dead. That is what he's saying here. Dad, I want your things, but I don't want you. And that is the, the way a lot of people treat God. They want all the good things that God gives us. Food, fun, friendship, sun, snow sports, sex. Life is full of good things, all coming from the hand of God. And the younger son wants the good things that the father has, but he doesn't want the father. It's summed up in just two words. Verse 12, give me. Just give me. Now, if we're looking to identify ourselves in this story, that was me as a 19-year-old. Just before I left home to move into my own flat, I remember my mum saying to me, you treat this house like a hotel. And she was right. She must have said it hundreds of times before, but that day it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had all my meals cooked for me. The washing was done for me. I enjoyed the comfort of the family home. I watched the TV. Before the days of mobile phones, I had the use of the telephone. I benefited from the central heating and the carpets, all the lovely things that you just take for granted. But because I had an active social life, I flew in and out of the home, barely spending any time with my mum and dad. You see, enjoying all the things they gave me, but not spending any time with them. And that's not right. It's not right to treat other people like that. And it's not right to treat God like that either. But that's what the younger son in the parable is doing. Give me, verse 12. That is his motto for life, and that's how he's treated his father. Give me so that I can go and do my own thing. 
And so in one devastating conversation, the relationship was ended. He's like so many who say to God, I don't need you. I run my own life my own way. Get off my case, God. Just leave me alone. (laughs) And he would have felt so great that day. Can you see him walking down the drive? His share of the insurance policy, now a great wadge of money in his back pocket. He's cutting loose. He's going to live it up a little. No, no, he's going to live it up a lot. He's off for wild living, as it says at the end of verse 13. No more having to be in by midnight. No more stupid rules and restrictions in the family home. He's off to have a ball. And as he walks down the driveway, you can feel him with his chest puffed out. He's free. As I've spoken over the years um, to people, they tell me that is exactly what they want. That sense of freedom, of not wanting anything to do with the God who restricts them. As one guy put it, God's always telling me what I can't do. You know, thou shalt not do this, that and the other. It's that feeling that God's out to ruin life, take all the fun out of life, cramp all my style. Never been a problem for me, I've never had any style, but you know what I mean. Anyway, that's the younger son, now he's cut loose. God is freedom. And at the end of verse 13, he's going to make the very most of it in wild living. He's getting what every young man dreams about, sex, drugs and rock and roll, the party life. And it was good. Well, the Bible never denies that living a wild life is fun or can be for a time. That's how it was for this young man. It was fun. Until that is the money dried up. And then having squandered all his wealth and with the recession hitting, he was alone and in need. Look at verse 14. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Feeding pigs is a pretty mucky business at the best of times, but while we might argue that it was at least a job and he could have done worse... Well, we might argue that way, be sure the first hearers of this story would not have thought that way. Reading that line, they would have been disgusted. They were Jewish. And remember, Jews don't eat pork, won't have anything to do with pigs. So hire yourself out to do that work. Well, that was to live in a pigsty in every meaning of the word. I've been trying to think uh, what would have the same shock value for us today. I don't know. Is it the person who'd be willing to work for a paedophile running a child pornography website? Is that it? Does that disgust you? That's the feeling here. That is the depths the younger son has sunk to. His situation is utterly degrading and disgusting, and on top of it all, he's hungry and lonely. Verse 16, he was so hungry he wanted to eat the pig food. And you see that at the end of verse 16, but no one gave him anything. He doesn't have a friend in the world. He is utterly alone. He's discovered that the very cruel truth that people often are takers and not givers. Once the money was gone, the friends were gone too. It takes me back to the summer of 1990. I know it's a long time ago, but I was old enough to go to New York City and to work there in the Big Apple with uh, the homeless most were drug addicts. I met one, one guy, his name was Big James. His name was James and he was very big, so they called him Big James. That works for me. He was a session musician, at least had been in the past. Played on a whole host of hit albums. 
And then he was very wealthy, lived the high life, hobnobbing with anyone who was anyone in that world. People wanted to hang around with Big James. He was cool. Oh, he was really cool. But then the drugs got hold. And to cut a long story short, he lost everything. His Manhattan apartment went. He was often stoned out of his mind, so he couldn't hold down his job anymore. Just didn't turn up for things, frankly. So the money ran out, but his habit needed feeding. And as he told me the story of how his life unraveled, he said to me, and Paul, all the friends I thought I had were nowhere to be seen. He said, once the money went, the friends went with it. That's what the younger son discovered here. So he was hungry and lonely and working in a pigsty, but verse, 13, uh, verse 17, it brought him to his senses. Sometimes it takes living the wildlife to discover that it doesn't deliver. You see the wildlife out there. Well, if only I could do that. It was only when you actually do it, you think it wasn't really all, all it was cracked up to be. Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom to discover that this life independent of God isn't all it's cracked up to be. Certainly being destitute is a pretty loud wake-up call. So he came to his senses, he saw the mess he'd made of life and most importantly of all, he came to his senses about his father. And here's the thing. He began to see what he left behind. See, verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm starving to death. His lifestyle was killing him, literally. And he thought of home. Home where he was loved and accepted no matter what he did. Home where, where even his father's employees were better off than him. And so he did something that is very difficult to do. He swallowed his pride. He says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say I'm sorry. That's verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And just two words, but they are so hard to say. I'm sorry. Uh, before we came here, when we were at a church in London, Caroline, my wife, and I ran the marriage preparation course for a while, and, and we told couples who were preparing for marriage that there are really two phrases they needed to learn and say often to each other. Now, I'm going to tell you these two phrases, and I know there's quite a lot of people who are sitting next to their, their spouse, and as I tell you these two phrases, I don't want you, uh, you know, digging each other in the ribs, okay? So I want arms locked in at the moment, because this could be a dangerous moment otherwise, okay? So here we go. The two phrases. Here's the first one. I'm sorry I was wrong. And the second is the response, that's okay, I love you. I'm sorry I was wrong. That's okay, I love you. If only we live like that in our marriages, it, they would go a lot better. And put like that, it doesn't seem so difficult. But actually, we all know how it sticks in our throat, how hard it is to say, I'm sorry I was wrong. It's hard to admit we're wrong, but that's how the Christian life begins. And so we see this youngest son rehearsing what he's going to say when he gets home. There he is in verse 18 and 19, walking up and down the pigsty, rehearsing his little speech. Dad, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. 
He's picturing himself turning up on the doorstep, not having been in touch with his father since that fateful day when he walked down the drive, the day when he told his father to get lost, wishing he was dead. He imagines seeing his father again and giving this little speech, verse 18, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of, like one of your hired men. He's rehearsing the speech and then he's heading for home. Verse 20, as he does, we come to the very heart of the story. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. So far, the story's been all about the younger son. Now the father is sent to stage and isn't this wonderful? The younger son is on his way home, but while he's still miles down the drive, long, long way off, do you see the most fantastic welcome he gets? Before we look at what he does get, see what he doesn't get, what doesn't happen. We don't see the father standing on the porch, arms crossed, with a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp, saying, this better be good, this better be good. And he doesn't say, I told you so, but you wouldn't listen. And he doesn't stand there grumbling to his wife. Oh, I've been waiting for a long time for this day. I'm going to give him hell. Oh, I'm going to make him grovel. I'm going to put him through it. Really, really make him squirm. There's none of that. What he does do, verse 20, is the father sees his son way off, runs down the path, cuts across the field, sees a gap in the hedge, grabs his son and smothers him with hugs and kisses. The father has been longing, waiting for this day for so long and now he can't, can't wait to see him. doesn't tear him off a, trip, a strip. He wants him home. And I love verse 21. The youngest son starts his rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he only gets halfway through the speech. The full speech is in verses 18 and 19, but the son doesn't get to finish it. The son says, I'm sorry I was wrong. And the father quickly says, that's okay, I love you. And then verse 22, the father turned to the servants and says, bring the robe, which was a sign of honour. And put a ring on his finger, a sign of authority, and put sandals on his feet, a sign of being back in the family. And so the son has been completely accepted. And the father is so pleased he throws a party. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, now he's alive again. He was lost, now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Let me ask you this evening, have you grasped this about the Father, about the one true living God? He does not treat us as we deserve. He does not say this better be good. He does not make us grovel. He doesn't grind our faces in the dirt. He is so generous to us. He rejoices to have us back whatever we've done. This is outrageous kindness. And for anyone here who knows that they've stormed out and turned their back on God, it's the most wonderful thing to hear. He can't wait to have you back. He'll accept you unconditionally. There is no probation period. 
The moment we come back to the Father, we're accepted into the family. It's the most brilliant news to hear if you are like the younger son. But despite it being the most wonderful news for some, for others this really angers them. Verse 25, meanwhile, 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 the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother's come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, furious, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh dear, the older son is livid. How can the father treat the younger son like that? How can the father welcome him back? And here's the thing, when I tell people the Christian gospel I meet people who react exactly the same way as the older brother they say to me things like this are you saying that it doesn't matter what people have done that God will have them back that he'll forgive them whatever yeah I'm saying that they hate it remember the older brother represents the people in verse 2 religious and respectable people And so often it is religious and respectable people that hate that God will forgive and accept people like the younger son. Accept anybody, whatever they've done. They think it's not fair. See, look again at the older son's words in verse 29. He's saying, I'm a good person. I've never done any wrong. Never been in trouble with the police, always worked hard, paid my taxes, I'm a good citizen. And what has God ever given me? But verse 30, the minute this scoundrel of a son comes back. Here's the great surprise in the story. The older son is a fine, upstanding moralist. He's joined the family firm. He's hardworking. He's slaved away for the company. He's always around his father. And remember in the story, the father represents God. And so he's the sort you'd expect to find in church, never miss on a Sunday. On the outside, he is very different from his younger brother. He's not like his brother, but he's nothing like his father either. When the younger son returns, the father's glad and the older brother is angry. The father greets him with open arms and the brother meets him with clenched fists. The father embraces the younger son, calling him my son. The older brother refers to him, verse 30, as this son of yours. Can't even call him my brother. So you see, on the outside, this older brother looks like a model of unselfishness until his guard slips. He seems like such a good person, but, verse 29, all he can think about is himself. In just one verse, in verse 29, he uses the word, I, me, or mine, four times. He's bound up with himself. This is how one person described the situation. The older brother contrived, without leaving home, to be as far away from his father as ever the younger brother was in the pigsty that's the point he's around his father all the time but he has no love for him 
And you see, that is how it often is with respectable people and religious people. People who can look so nice on the outside, yet they don't have any love for God. They know nothing of a loving, ongoing relationship with their father. And so on the outside, these two sons could not look more different, but on the inside, in relationship to the father, they're both the same. They are both miles and miles away. If you want to think about God or Christianity in terms of religion, these two sons are very different. But if you think about God in terms of relationship, and that is how Jesus tells us to think about him. If we think about God in terms of relationship, these sons are very similar. Yes, one is religious, the other is not. One is respectable, the other is not. But they're both out of relationship with their father. One's had an almighty row and has stormed off. The other just drifted away from the father. But they are both out of relationship with God. But just as the younger son is welcomed back, did you notice verse 28? The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, the graciousness of our God. God pleads with us to come back in to be part of his family. That is how much he he wants you and loves you. And so as we come to an end, what about you and me? As Jesus tells this story, have you rummaged around in your imaginary handbag? Have you got out the, 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 the mirror? Are you looking in it and are you saying, yes, I can identify myself? I expect you know if you're like the younger son, you've openly lived a life of rebellion against God. If that is you, thanks so much for coming here this evening. For whatever reason you've come, thanks for being here. And please hear that this God, the one true living God, this Father is ready and willing and longing to welcome you back. For the rest, well, can you see yourself in the older brother You describe yourself as a decent person. Even if you're not religious, you'd say that you believe God exists. You think that the world would be a better place if everyone lived a decent life. But for all that, when it comes to God, well, may I put it this way? Your relationship with God is more like a frigid marriage than a love story. If that is you, then know that your heavenly father is pleading with you to come into his family. And let me ask you, will you do that this evening? This is a wonderful story, but have you noticed it has no ending, really? We don't know if the older son ever went into the party. We don't know what happened to the younger son. It's tantalising. Was this just a flash in the pan or did he stay with it? And the reason Jesus doesn't end the story is because you and I are meant to. Having identified ourselves as one of the sons, we're meant then to end the story by writing our own ending. And I would guess there'll be some here this evening saying, you know, I I can't yet write the end of the story for me because I don't have enough information. I don't know enough yet about Christianity. I like what I'm hearing. If this is true, I'd like to be part of it, but I don't have enough information yet. If that is you, then I've got a booklet just like this. I've got a number of them, and I'll be standing on the door at the end. Just say you want one of these, and this will tell you more about Christianity. And if when you've read that, that isn't enough, then grab one of us next week, and we'll help you to know more. 
Now, some of you do need more time to look into this, but there'll be some here who, who say, no, I, I do want to come home to my father, my heavenly father. I do have enough information. And perhaps as I've been speaking this evening, it's not, it's not as if I've been speaking at all. It's almost as if your heavenly father has been speaking directly to you. It's almost as if this sermon has been just for you. If that's you tonight, then come home to your heavenly father tonight. And again, you take this booklet from me. Have a read through and right at the end there's a prayer you can pray to start with the Lord Jesus tonight.